us uh, turn now to our Bibles. Our scripture text is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. But for context, I'll be reading verses, uh, well, I'll just read through verse 9. So verses 1 through 9 of Ephesians 2. Hear the reading of the word of the God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Since the reading of God's holy word, let us pray. O Lord God, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, for we are handling here the very word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, a text which itself is infallible and true. As we do so, O Lord, help us to understand it and be transformed by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are working slowly through Ephesians, working uh, in chapter 2 now. We have already done verses 1 through 6 in previous weeks. The uh, first section was 1 through 3, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, which I call the dismal news that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we are by nature children of wrath. So this is the bad news that you have to understand about yourself before you can understand the good news, the gospel of Christ. And then we have this inbreaking of this momentous, earth-shattering truth, but God, because he's rich in mercy, uh, and because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, raised us with him, and seated us with him in the high heavenlies. That's what we did last time, uh, how God has intervened. And so you understand that in the gospel, you have a word that is able to raise the dead. That is what the gospel does through the operation of the Holy Spirit. This is why preaching uh, is not simply human words, but insofar it is the proclamation of the word of God is attended by the Holy Spirit such that he transforms people. This should give you encouragement that if you talk to your neighbors about uh, the gospel of Christ and you share a word of Christ, you don't rely upon yourself for wisdom and insight. Uh, And also the easiest way to provide for them is to invite them to church because they will hear the gospel here. Uh, so this is, this is uh, 
the background of this. You have people who are by nature dead. They are by nature children of wrath. You have to have a word that can come into a cemetery and raise people from the dead. And that's what the gospel does, is the power of God for salvation, to bring life from the dead. It's no accident that in uh, our text, it talks about God in his rich mercy and kindness has made us alive together with Christ. He has to make us alive. He has to bring us out of death into life and resurrection. And then, stunningly, he seats us with him in the high heavenlies. Now, in verse 7, we get, begin the next section, the, the section we're working on now, uh, which has this quite... We've already had a lot of stunning stuff. Now we've got more stunning stuff. <laughs> it's this quite remarkable, stunning statement of God's purpose for all of this. And his purpose is expressed in verse 7 with this purpose clause. Uh, and it is uh, a statement that is overwhelmingly wonderful. So we will have to spend some time on this in a moment. Then you have in verse 8 a reprise of something he's already said. So in verse 5, he has this uh, interjection, as it were, and it's a preview. When he says, in the middle of this course of all the things God has done for us in Christ, he kind of pauses in the middle of verse 5 and says, by grace, you have been saved. Uh, so it's just three words in the original, by grace you are saved. Uh, and then in verse 8, he repeats those words identically, adding a few extra to uh, really show that this is where he's really leading in verse 5. He's leading to what he's going to say in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, etc. So verse 8 really is an expansion on that, but he's given us a preview of that in verse 5, and now he's going to expand on that. So you've kind of lodged it in our mind in verse 5. We're, we're kind of hearing that, and you know, it's kind of a, almost a stray remark he throws in, and now in verse 8 he's going to flesh it out. So that's what we're looking at with this structure. Uh, and then in verse 9, uh, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, which is nine words in English. In the original, it's seven words. It's not a very long verse. I think it should be attached to verse 8. So if I were making versification, I would have just one verse there, 8 and 9, for what it's worth. It's uh, simply really connected to it and filling out what he's begun in verse 8. So that's what we're going to be doing with that. And this is why for tonight we're going through 7 through 9, uh, starting in the middle of this purpose, which is uh, really almost too wonderful to contemplate. Uh, so purpose clause, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. A purpose clause is uh, an intended result. It's what you intend to accomplish by something. So God has raised, he's made us alive and raised us in Christ and seated us in the high heavenlies for a purpose. He intends to have that result in something. So you talk about purpose being intended result. 
It's what you are trying to accomplish. It answers the question, well, why did he do that? So why did God make us alive and seated us with him in the high heavenlies in Christ? Why did he do that? And here's the reason why in verse 7. So that, in consequence of that, here's what he intends to accomplish. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he might display in us uh, the superabundant measure and wealth of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. That's why he did that. He did it so that he may display more kindness and grace to us. He might show us where we came from, and he might basically put us on display to, uh, to show to all of his creatures, look at what I've done with these trophies of mine. Look at these people who had no hope and how much hope they have now. How beautiful they are. I have made them into new creatures, and they now glorify me. Look at, look at what has happened as a result of my son going to earth and being born as one of them and dying on the cross to bring them into heavenly glory. Look at the, look at the wonder of where they're at now, what I have accomplished in them. And then the praise of God will burst out. People, people and angels will not be able to constrain themselves. When they see this work of God, they're just going to burst uh, with this song of joy and triumph of God uh, when they see us being put on display. This is, this is what God is accomplishing in us. You're his trophy. <laughs> and you look at yourself and say, not much of a trophy, not very shiny, <laughs> right? Need a little polish. Brothers and sisters, it, it's going to redound to his glory you don't look at yourself, you look at his working in you. That's where the glory is. He is going, he is determined to do this. Now we're going to come back to this and talk about it a little bit more. But that's what verse 7 says. Uh, that he is intending in all of this work uh, to, in the coming ages, to show his unfathomable riches of grace and kindness toward us. And, and so that also implies he's got more grace and kindness to show us. It is just, it's just he's going to lavish his grace and kindness on us. He gives, and he delights to give, and he will give more and more and more in the coming ages. This is what God says he will do for us. This is why we praise him and we, we stand around in awe uh, at his, the wonder of his kindness toward us, knowing where we came from. And then in verse 8, Paul shows that he is uh, well aware of the irony of what he had just said. And the irony is, we were by nature dead, children of wrath. God made us alive because he's rich in mercy. So we were dead with nothing to offer God except wrath, sin, and transgression. And God made us alive together with his son. And the implication is he sent his son to die that he might make him alive and make us alive at the same time. That is part of God's purpose in all of his sending of his son. That we 
along with him will be raised from the dead and seated in the high heavenlies in him. And so the only way to describe that is grace. And sometimes people define grace as uh, God's uh, kindness shown to people who are undeserving. Unmerited favor. You've all heard that undoubtedly. I want you to, I want you to pick up a new definition of grace, okay? I want you to reshape that. God's favor despite demerit. God's favor despite your undeserving. Your undeserving. There's no way to put it easily. Unmerited favor is easy, but the reality is it's not just unmerited. You weren't just standing around neutral saying, oh, it'd be nice if I got some grace. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty decent fellow. That's not where we are. That's not what verses 1 through 3 said. Instead, it's people who deserve his wrath receive his favor. That's what grace is. So grace upon the people deserving wrath. That's what we have here and why Paul says this. Now this is a Calvinist verse. There's just no denying it. You know, I don't, I don't talk about that a lot from the pulpit. It's assumed because we're Reformed and that means we're Calvinists. It's just a fact. I tend to think of us as Augustinian. The nice thing about uh, Calvinism is he, you know, Calvin didn't invent it. Neither did Luther. Both of them were Augustinians. Augustine lived around 400 AD in that vicinity and the really fun thing about Augustine, if you ever were to read him, uh, later in life he printed retractions, and one of them impacted his Augustinianism. He wasn't an Augustinian to begin with, he was an Arminian. <laughs> and then he changed and became Augustinian. <laughs> so he, he printed a retraction where he, he, he said, well, I was wrong earlier, so read me now, and this is what I understand. And he, he articulates this as well. Other early church fathers that I have read on this verse articulate the same idea. This is not new or controversial. This is the, the teaching of Scripture, and it is really easy to understand and to affirm that grace here is lavished on people who did not initiate it but receive it uh, by faith. Now, there's some details here that will support that that I want you to know about, but I say this because I was uh, looking for a book on Amazon recently. What was the book? Uh, I was going to buy it for somebody. And interestingly, the recommended books, it's interesting what recommended books they give me. If I look for something on theology, I get all this other stuff. And someone would look at it and go, oh, really? You think I would read that? Uh, and then, but one of them was this Calvinism explored and refuted. And I'm going, oh, okay. They want to sell, sell me this book, Refuting Calvinism. And I was thinking, oh, those are still going around. Uh, okay. Just for your information, I did write an essay in a book defending Calvinism against one of those books a long time ago. So I am familiar with that whole stuff. Um, but brothers and sisters, this is a text which is not in doubt. And one of the things about Calvinism is Augustinianism. 
It's just everywhere. Uh, you're going to hear it in a morning sermon beginning next week <laughs> because it's right there. Uh, it's, it's in the text of Matthew 11, um, particularly when you juxtapose two, two texts that are right next to each other. If you want to look at this, just look at uh, Matthew 11:27 and then read verse 28. Uh, it's really quite striking uh, how it doesn't seem to work together until you understand the workings uh, which we articulate in Calvinism. Well, let me, let me get into this for a moment. Let me look at verse 8 and show you what's being said. Uh, this is really not in any doubt. This is a pretty clear text and one that uh, I would like you to know uh, how clear and important and strongly it's worded uh, by Paul here. So we're looking at verse 8 in particular. Uh, we will bring in verse 9 at the end. So when you look at this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Now you have three things there. Uh, by grace, you are saved through faith. When it says you are saved, this means you have been saved. That's over with. It's an event which has occurred, and you are now saved. It's a state you are in in consequence of that taking place. Just think of it this way. You're hanging by your fingernails on the side of a cliff, and somebody needs to save you, so somebody comes along really strong and grabs your arms and pulls you up off the cliff, and you are saved. But the point is, you are now rescued. You are now in a safe place. You're, you're no longer hanging you know, by your fingernails on the cliff. You are up on uh, safe ground. That's, the, that's what Paul is saying here. It's not that you will be saved, that's true, but you are saved and are now in the possession of this state of salvation. It is your possession now, and that has taken place in Christ Jesus. And you acquire it by faith. Now, faith is a means for, for acquiring this salvation by grace. Grace is what God has done to present it to us and to enable us to accept it by faith. He works in us so that we can, he graciously works in us, come alive and believe in his son. Faith is a consequence of God's working in us to receive his son and trust in him. It's a working of God so that we can do it. But we do it. See, Calvinism doesn't deny that we believe. We believe. And it's a truly human belief that we do. But there's no merit in it because it's simply receiving the gift that God has given us. Now, at this point, you're looking at this verse, and the next, word, next few words are you know, a little ambiguous, so let's clear it up. Reading verse 8 again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. The question is, what is it? What is this? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What? What is he talking about? 
Now, at this point, English is ambiguous. It, it isn't quite as clear as Greek is. Greek is clear here because it has gender forms. And that means you have masculine and feminine and neuter forms in Greek, and the word this is neuter. It's a neuter, this, and so you could render that this thing. This thing uh, is not from you. And you ask the question, well, what thing are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about it. It is a gift of God. Well, what is it? So in English, you could look back in verse 8 and just take faith. Faith is not from you. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God. True enough, but it, but faith in Greek is feminine, not neuter. So it, you, you have lack of agreement there. Then you look at grace. Well, that's feminine too. So the, the solution is really quite easy and common. Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. I only chose this because it's also in Ephesians. There's a lot of examples of this, very common. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is neuter in Greek, right here. It's the same thing. Now, now, answer, now answer me the question. What is it that's right? Children, obeying your parents in the Lord, right? The whole thing. So it's that whole statement. It's, it's the whole thing that you're talking about. It's, it's, it's just like me saying, well, I sold my car on uh, Craigslist, uh, and I asked $600, and the guy gave me a traveler's check for $600, uh, and when I went to the bank and tried to cash it in, they said they didn't take traveler's checks, so I, could, I, I, I couldn't find a place that took traveler's checks, so I tried to reach the guy, and he was out of the country, and, you know, there were all these ins and outs. I finally did uh, get the traveler's check cashed somewhere, but this isn't right, right? Somebody should do about it. <laughs> what? Well, the whole mess, right? The whole, you know, selling online, $600, bank not coming through, you know, all sorts, every step of the way, it's not right. The whole mess, the whole thing, right? That's what we have in Ephesians uh, 2.8. Here's, here's what he's saying. For by grace, that's not your doing. You've been saved, that's not your doing. <laughs> through faith, that's not your doing. It's a gift from God. The whole thing, that's what he's saying. This thing, this whole thing, gracious salvation through faith comes from God. And that's what he says quite plainly, the source. Where does it come from? The source of it is God. He's the one who originates it as a gift. Interestingly, uh, in the word order at the end of verse 8, it is a gift of God. It's just three words, and it sounds like this. Of God, it is a gift. There's actually a stress there on God. It is from God as his gift. So God is the one who's given that to you. So brothers and sisters, now the question arises, 
Where then is boasting? Now, I'm going to tell you a secret. When you're dealing with Paul, make sure if you if you're going to get if you're going to read Paul correctly, be able to explain the next verse. If you understand this verse correctly, see how it explains and connects with the next verse. So look at verse 9. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, that's, that's how we know we got it right. None of this comes from us. It's a gift from God, so there's no boasting. You can't look at your own contribution to salvation and say to him, well, look what I've done. Look how much faith I've produced here that brought me this great salvation. In the coming ages, we're all going to be lined up and God is going to show the display of his grace with people who are all beating their chest and say, yeah, man, I'm a, probably the best believer in this whole bunch. I'm the one who really believes like nobody's business. I, and, and you know, grace was really not lost on me. See, none of that. It's none of that. None of us are going to say that. There's no boasting. There's no looking at ourselves. We won't look at ourselves anymore. That's what you do to get out of the doldrums as a Christian. If you, if you start wondering if your faith is not big enough, you're looking at the wrong place. Of course it's not big enough. Of course it's not good enough. Of course it's not strong enough. None of us have the best kind of faith. We have a Savior who's strong. We have a Savior who's good. A Savior who's strong to save doesn't require the most amount of faith. Sincere faith. Need. People who know their need. That's what he requires. And that's what he's given us here in Christ Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, this comes from God as a gift. The only boasting there is, is boasting in the Lord. This is from, uh, if you read in Romans 4, and Romans 5, we've actually been looking at that in our Bible study down in Eugene. You're welcome to come, come down if you want to play around with Romans <laughs> Thursday evenings. Uh, but, but we've been having a lot of fun with that because in Romans 4, oh, let me read that for you. I'm, I, I won't take long. Romans 4, 1 through 5. Let me read this for you. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Did you hear that? Who justifies the ungodly. Doesn't that sound like Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? People who are dead in their trespasses and sins. He's the one who justifies us when we are in that state. So no boasting. Nothing to boast about. We don't look to ourselves. We don't contribute anything real. Faith isn't a contribution. It is a reception. It is an acceptance of Christ and a resting upon him in sure knowledge uh, that his word and promises to us are true. Now Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We boast in hope of the glory of God, even in the midst of tribulations. We boast in them because we have a great God who transforms these, uh, these trials of our life into something useful for us in godliness. This is, this is why God is going to display us in the last day. Through coming ages, he's going to display us because he's working in us so that we would be a treasury displaying his marvelous, rich, unfathomable grace and kindness. Uh, and so if you want to see a preview of this, Job 1, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And you know the story of Job. How blameless was he in the end of the day? Well, a lot more blameless than I am. A lot more godly, a lot more, you know, steadfast. He had, he had these character qualities which any of us would admire, but at the same time, he had sin and blamed God for his troubles and, and did not trust in the Lord. He spoke words without knowledge, and he had to be rebuked for that. But God still had him on display. Have you considered my servant? X. Put your name there. Have you considered my servant X and how, how they are models of faith where my grace is displayed? People who've been saved out of the miry pit. This is, this is what God has in mind for us in the coming ages, that we would be uh, grace and kindness would surround us and we would glow with them for the glory of our Father. You know, what's interesting is in Ephesus at the time that Paul is writing this to the Ephesians, in the city of Ephesus, it was filled with temples. There were temples all over. And the largest building in the ancient world was the temple of the patron goddess of Ephesus, Artemis Ephesia, Artemis Artemis of Ephesus. It was the largest building in the ancient world. It's now a ruin in a little swamp, but back then it was a big tourist attraction. You can read that in Acts 19, a big tourist thing. They sold little trinkets to the tourists, uh, the silversmiths. But the thing about these temples that you may not know is people would hang trophies in these temples to the gods for victories won by the power of these gods that they so-called. If you want to see this, you can actually see it today if you go to the Acropolis of Athens. There's a small temple to Athena Nike. Nike is the Greek word for victory. Uh, we get Nike from that. Nike is, uh, you know, the Greek pronunciation of that. Uh, but Athena and Nike, and there's a frieze on the outside of it. A frieze is a, you know, 
instead of a full sculpture, it's on a flat wall, but then they make 3D pictures of, you know, things on the, on the uh, stone carved into it. And in this frieze, you have uh, goddesses bringing trophies from the victory of the Greeks over the Persians uh, in the Battle of Marathon. And this is where we get a marathon race. That's all, you know, 490 BC, pretty early days. But that's because after that great victory, that's what you do. You take all the uh, armor off of your defeated foes. Uh, you take their clothing, you take their shields, you take their swords, you take their bows and arrows, and you hang them in the temple as a tribute to the great victory that the God has given to you. You are that tribute. He's not going to hang up shields and bows and swords. He's going to hang up you in his temple. He's going he's to ask you to be on display to display his mercy and kindness. We are his trophies. We live now by grace through our faith. And, and it's just, it, it gives us this newness of life that gives us a reality that, that is standing before us that we can never fully appreciate until we enter into it. But that's God's purpose for us that we would show forth his mercy and kindness and grace in coming ages. And those ages will never grow dim or tiring to us. They will be a new source of delight to see God's kindness displayed in one another. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we do thank you for your mercy and grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. We are debtors to grace, O oh Lord. All of this from you. Grace, salvation, and faith, it all originates from you as a gift. And we give you thanks and praise, O oh Lord. Help us to live up to that now. Help us to grow in our appreciation of you and your kindness and grace, and to sing your praise in our lives, to live according to the newness that you have appointed for us. Uh, for we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Help us to live accordingly, O Lord. Through Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.